Mike Schmoker has a way of cutting to the heart of the truth and simultaneously inspiring educators to dream of what's possible. The fact is, educators can easily get distracted. Schmoker reminds us that if we stay focused on what we already know works, incredible things can happen for students. If you're in any way responsible for leading schools, this is a must listen. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I'm Jeff Rose, and I have an incredible job. I really, really do. As many people know, we, we support what we call the Leadership Circle, this community of educational district leaders, superintendents, their teams, etc. And what is, what is so fun about what I get to do is we track opportunities and challenges we see our members, our districts, our schools having. And I call it almost this organic content because what, then what we do is we go hunt and we look for experts, uh, people who have written, people who have done incredible work related to some of those opportunities and challenges. And I actually get to meet these people that I've idolized for years. Um, I've listened to, I've read their books, and today is one of those days. I've said this before that some of the very people that I interview on behalf of our members in our leader chat, um, I, I let them know, I know you so much more than you know me, or so much better than you know me, which is true because I've, I've listened to them speak, and today is the, the perfect example of that. I am going to be interviewing on your behalf, um, Dr. Mike Schmoker. And so let me read a quick bio. Um, I always shorten these because I want to get to the conversation as fast as I can. Um, I said Dr. Mike Schmoker, and many of you listening are shaking your head up and down because you know him, you've heard, or you've heard him speak, you've read his material. And if you haven't, well, then you might want to prepare yourself because this is going to be a fantastic discussion. Dr. Mike Schmoker is a former administrator, English teacher, and football coach. He has written several best-selling books and dozens of articles for educational journals, newspapers, and for Time Magazine. His most recent book is the expanded 2018 edition of Focus, Elevating the Essentials to Radically Improve Student Learning. His previous bestseller, Results Now, was a finalist for Book of the Year by the Association of Education Publishers. Dr. Mike Schmoker is the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award by the National Association of Secondary Principals for his publications and presentations. And in 2018, Education Week survey of national school leaders, he was ranked amongst the best sources of practical advice, wisdom, and insight on effective school improvement. Obviously, this is one of the reasons I reached out, and we're so thankful he's going to be here with us. Dr. Mike Schmoker has consulted and keynoted throughout the U.S., Canada, Australia, China, and Jordan. He now lives in Tempe, Arizona with his wife, Cheryl. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome Mike to the screen. Mike, I just... I. Number one, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm excited and, you know, almost a little nervous and that's okay just because, you know, I've looked up to you for a long time. So uh, I'm really appreciative of you. Thank you. Well, thanks for that nice, those nice comments. And it's a pleasure to do this, Jeff. 
Well, and, and you can tell folks why my why my hand is sticking up in the air. No, 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 you you, you tell folks because that, that was something I, I, I just yeah okay, sure. I just had carpal tunnel surgery, and the, and the the doctor not only said I've got to keep it elevated for a couple more days, but when it's not elevated, it hurts. So I'm not raising my hand. I'm just just recovering from this surgery. I hope it doesn't annoy. So. Well, we if, if you are raising your hand, you're the only one in the room doing it. So I'll make sure to call on you over and over. How's that? Please do. Please. So, Swap. Mike, what did I miss in your bio? I mean, there's nuance. There's, I mean, I, I abbreviated it, but like, what would be important that you would want others to know beyond your bio, if that makes sense? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know of anything uh, that, that leaps to mind, uh, Jeff, but uh, as, as I talk a little bit about, say, my, my journey in education, some of that will come out. Uh, the, the, the one thing that might not be in, in explicit in my bio is that from a fairly early age, I began to kind of look at the teaching I was receiving, whether it was in grade school or right up through college and graduate work, and that 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 journey through through the system taught me a lot and really kind of was the impetus for me to do the kind of work I do today. So let, let's let's talk about the impetus because you you have had this you know really really interesting you know career thus far and you're still cranking and so maybe just give us a little more detail about your why. I mean, you know, you talked about being a student, but um, over time you continue um to to move forward with your kind of career and journey what is what would you describe as your your the crux of your motivation well i think it's good for us just to think about what what's it like to be a kid in school these days what what what's the nature of a 55 minute class and then you take a break and you go to the next class or the next class and I, I think most of us would acknowledge that an awful lot of what goes on in schools and our we'll talk about this in some detail, um, it, it's not optimal either to satisfy or engage students, and it's certainly not as educational as it could be. Um, I like to start with with what, what that child's experience is like when they're in class. Do they feel like they're getting something vital and important? And, and, and does, that, uh, does that cause them to feel engaged and, and even to possibly enjoy their schoolwork? I, think we're pretty far from the mark in that regard. And I guess the other why for me just has to do with a kind of the whole system analysis. If we look at everything going on in schools today, in a way I always like to say, and this is this is the impetus for the work I do to a great degree, uh, could almost be reduced to two, two people's work. One of them is Daniel Willingham. And he says in one of his articles, and this is almost, a, I think it's a direct quote. He says, in education, we still don't wash our hands, still don't wash our hands. What he means by that is we still don't do even the most basic, proven, evidence-based uh, things, Those, the, the most proven, substantive, game-changing, and I do mean game-changing, elements of a good education. They, they're, we're hardly out of the blocks on making sure those things are implemented. And maybe the second piece, it has to go with it. If that sounds depressing, it shouldn't be. I always <laughs> think of a guy named Dick Fosbury, okay? I'll bet you, when I say Fosbury, who comes to mind for you, Jeff, and a lot of our listeners here? Fosbury, yeah, well, what do the, you think the Fosbury flop, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, the high jumper. Right, right. So here's this kid, he walks out on the field, 
in the mid sixties. And he says to his track coach, he says, I want to, I want to go over the bar backwards instead of forwards. And nobody had done this before. The moment he did that, he made not a small gain. He made a six inch gain in one afternoon, a half inch gain in an afternoon would be impressive. He made a six inch gain and he made it in two hours, one afternoon. Now that can only happen in my analogy is it, the education system today. That kind of big immediate leap can only occur in a, in a field where, going back to Willingham, where you still don't do the most basic things that need to be done to, to perform optimally. We still don't wash our hands. The moment we begin to wash our hands in education, we're, we're almost bound to experience what is what might be called the Fosbury effect, an immediate, swift, large gain in achievement, in narrowing of the achievement gap, all the good stuff. That's really the challenge for us today. And to tell you the truth, I don't know that enough educators uh, realize how large that opportunity is. And forgive me, forgive me, Jeff, how uh, how upside down the current system is that creates that enormous opportunity. Well, what, what's, what I find so um, compelling uh, about um, your message and what you say and what you've written about, and in fact, I've, I've had people before talk about, you know, focus and results, and that's how they'll abbreviate your books as, you know, Bibles that they use. Um, but one thing that you do is you're very clear and honest uh, about what you're seeing. Now, by the way, it, for some reason, it doesn't come across as depressing. It actually, uh, it, it, it pulls me in and others as well, because I think that when, when you describe this issue, that sometimes we don't do the most basic of things, um, I think it begs the question for me, why? I mean, what do you think gets in the way as it was uh, relating to just us doing the basic things that we know would or could or should work? Why, yeah, why, why don't we? And I get that question a lot. And frankly, I'm always and I still ponder it. Uh, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, with what Richard Elmore calls the buffer. And he basically says schools have gotten pretty good, and some of this is inadvertent, some of it's fairly deliberate. Um, schools have gotten pretty good at trotting out, oh, innovations and programs and this and that, and looking at their, their average test scores. And if, if test scores are decent or better, and which is the case in an awful lot of schools, compared to other districts and schools in the region and the state, um, the gov the, I'm sorry, the, the, the public and, and parents give them a pass. As long as the system, as, so, as long as what really goes on in classrooms can hide behind the sort of uh, the, the good news that gets trotted out, the sort of positive, um, happy talk that we get from, say, the, the, the public relations arm of the school district. And it's not just the school district, it's the whole state looks to say, oh, our schools are better than someone else's or whatever. Uh, I think we're in trouble. Now, when you look behind that buffer, you know, you see all kinds of things that ought to unsettle us. And, uh, and, and again, going back to why I write so frankly about these things is because when you tour classrooms, for instance, uh, with administrators, with, with teachers, only then do they begin to see, if it's made clear to them what they should look for, only then do they start to see, wow, we could be so very much better than we are.
You know, when we, when you and I were talking, preparing for this discussion, um, you you said something that I, I wrote down, and so I, I I'm hoping I wrote this down correctly. Uh, you, you said what happens in schools has very little to do with the teaching and learning process. And this is part of a, a something we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote it down because it's, it was a sentence that kind of slapped me in the face because. Um, One thing I notice, um, which aligns to what you just mentioned, is that it's very easy for schools, districts, communities to become very uh, distracted. And sometimes the, the focus on students, even though just about every school district or school talks about, you know, it's all for the children or, you know, we put kids first or whatever the, the statement is. Teaching and learning sometimes gets hijacked in terms of the focus by a lot of other factors, right? And so, yes. and why, why do you, when, based upon all your observations, and I know there are many, feel free to mention them, but wh- wh- why do you say what happens in schools sometimes has very little to do with the teaching and learning process? Well, first of all, when you and I talked, I was probably, uh, uh, you know, quickly sort of paraphrasing something that Richard Elmore had written. And what he actually says, and the first word in that is, and this is almost a direct quote, Jeff, it's administration in schools has very little to do with teaching and learning and with improving teaching and learning. Uh Um, What he's really, really saying is that if you look at the duties of a principal. If you look at the things they do, and he even goes so far as to say what they're prepared to do in, say, uh, you know, administrative preparation courses, what they're rewarded for once they're in school districts has very little to do with, with how well they can ensure, and I just want to be as simple as possible here, they can ensure that everyone in that school, every teacher is teaching a viable curriculum and teaching it well. In other words, they're they're just employing the most obvious, unassailable core practices. I always like to say, maybe we should throw out 90% of our evaluations and just say, look, you're largely gonna be evaluated on whether or not you are teaching a solid curriculum. And of course we have to give that to teachers and we currently don't. And number two, and this is it, are they teaching it just employing the most basic, basic, core practices that no one would disagree with. And what what uh, Elmore says is, you can travel through thousands of schools, you will rarely find a teacher, excuse me, an administrator whose work focuses on that. They're not rewarded for it, they're not prepared, they're not equipped to do that kind of work. When I was, if I may be so bold, in the two districts where I was at the central office, I knew of maybe two principals who had risen up the ranks and become uh, principals or administrators on the merits of how well they taught or how well they could get others to teach. Only two. That's, I know that's a very damning statement, but oh my gosh, the opportunity we have to, uh, to improve that. Most of the things I talk about, I firmly believe could be improved and changed radically in a very short period of time, if and only if we focused on those things. Um. So let's uh, let's 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 pick on the problem a little bit more, and then I'll start shifting on to your point. What we should maybe um, start to do and think about in order to to, to turn that corner. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so 
you mentioned a couple things. Uh, one, you know, in terms of um, Elmore, I think it was either um, you were maybe quoting him also when you said, you know, that schools sometimes have, you know, quote, lost their way. Um, I don't think people go into even educational leadership, the principalship, the central office, etc., with the intention of losing their way. I, I do think that often there's these pure motives behind what drive teachers and leaders to do mm -hmm. what they do. Something, something distracts them or pulls them from their passion or their why. And before they know it, I think they create habits on their job becoming, managing a system as opposed to leading it based upon what's best for kids. Oh, that's um, and that's not often, it's not even, they don't choose it. It just happens. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, what, what do you see? And I see things and I'll add to the conversation. What do, do you see as distractors that take mm -hmm. a, a, a leader with, with a pure motivation and, yes. and yes. pulls them into a direction that they never would have seen themselves going prior right. to being in the seat. Right. And I agree with everything you just said. And I would say, you know, systems have a life of their own and they, they act on us slowly and subtly. I and mean, the things that, that prevent us from you know, achieving you know, really, really important goals aren't, it isn't someone just walking up and saying, let's not concentrate on improving the lives of children through better education. It's more like the system itself over time kind of degrades, again, oftentimes inadvertently, to where it just starts to, to trot out innovations, as, as Elmore likes to say, we're always a boil with change, always a boil with innovation. But those innovations, they look great on paper. Strategic planning, oh my goodness. You know, I was deeply involved for, you know, a decade or more in strategic planning at the district and school level. And we'd produce these big paper documents that looked gorgeous and they had columns and boxes and the school board loved them. And yet they were miles away from, and I want to be, again, very direct here, they made us feel good. And if I may say, all of us were kind of duped by these documents. They convinced us that we had to be, that all this great stuff would have to have an impact on kids. The one thing it didn't touch, or two things, I guess, was it didn't much affect what teachers taught or how well they taught it. All the strategic planning, all the innovations, they were like pseudo-innovations. They appeared, they had the appearance of, of having to do with instruction and they, you know, we use highfalutin language. I, I don't care what anyone says, we, we're all subject to uh, the, uh, those kinds of forces which, which quell uh, an awareness that we're not doing the basics. We're still not washing our hands. I mean, just, just to give you one quick example, Yeah. until every teacher in America knows there's a thing called check for understanding. By the way, we've done a decent job of acquainting teachers with these terms, like checks for understanding. But until every teacher both knows that term and uses it consistently, uh, we're, we're probably not going to see any, I don't care what else we do, we're, we're not going to see improvements in, uh, in, in educational outcomes. Okay. So you just, in, in what you just said, unfortunately, it, it brought up some more questions. I, I have to go a little deeper because this is so um, interesting. I, I have said before to others that when I would enter a district, a new district, and I was 
knew, they often would welcome me with a strategic plan, right? They would want me to know as a leader, this is the process we went through, and here's this really impressive three-ring binder with, <clears throat> you know, all of, the, all, all of the boxes and the colors and the right sayings that, you know, really show how dedicated we are to our community and our kids. Well, um, my strategy would be to take that document and I would go through a process where I'd put it behind my back and I would quiz people I would talk to. I would, st I would quiz teachers. Yeah, I yeah. would quiz the administrators, the principals, and the central office. And mm -hmm. fortunately, the consistency was everyone failed the quiz every time. Yeah. No one yeah. could pass. Yeah. And yeah. my thought was, how strategic is a strategic plan if we don't even know what's in it? Well, right, right. right. And, and I, again, I, it happens over me. and over, yeah. you know? And, 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 I, and I was about to say, uh, we the, the more stuff we... we put out there, the longer the strategic plan, the more innovations we have going in our school districts, the more distracted we are from simple things like, and I've done, and I've taken these tours with school, uh, school people for decades now, hundreds of them. We walk through the school and no matter what that strategic plan says, you still have students, the only, number one, the, the only students being called on in class are the ones who what? Raise their hands. Right. Number two, worksheets occupy easily 50% or, or more of the school day and school year. Number three, kids do endless, aimless amounts of group work, which any observer, if they're looking for it, that's the thing, if they know what to look for, any observer would see uh, this group work is not terribly productive and, and, and there's, a, there's a general avoidance of the teacher being in front of the room, making sure all the students are paying attention and delivering instruction in a way that not a third or a half of the students learn that day, but that 80, 90% of the students learn that day. The strategic plan doesn't even touch any of those really primary realities. So then let's, let's shift the conversation uh, to uh, identifying maybe some strategies or some options for leaders. Sure. So as, as we're talking with, with principals, central office, people that can um, have the potential to drive incredible amount of change and do amazing things for thousands upon thousands of children. Mm -hmm. As we've kind of uh, described the dilemma, what might be some of the, the very first thoughts that you would have what what can or should a leader do right oh. now based upon you know these dilemmas we're, we're talking about um say a school a school leader district or or school building uh i i think we have to pay heed to what we know are the most high leverage actions we can take and those things happen to be in in this kind of format I can't expound on it too much, but I would defy anyone who does the research. And of course, my books lay all this out. Yes. There are many other sources where you'd find out. Number one, perhaps the largest single factor that affects how many kids will learn in a class, a school, or a district is whether or not there's a curriculum in place and everyone teaches it. So that would be something 
first thing for the, for, for a, an administrator to focus on, is there a curriculum? And is it, and this brings us to the second element, is it literacy rich? In other words, if you look at that curriculum, are there places where it's explicitly laid out what students will read and discuss and write about? If without the reading and the discussion and the and the writing, it's not truly a curriculum. It's a it's a curriculum with with, with missing its heart. And and then number number three, have the teachers just learned the basic bones of effective instruction? Which means, is there a clear objective? Is the teacher monitoring instruction as they teach in? I like Kim Marshall. I think you've interviewed Kim Marshall, did you not? I have, yeah. Kim Marshall, I love love his little expression. Are we teaching in in small, manageable, bite-sized chunks? Uh, one of the best teachers I ever had who taught me algebra, uh, and I, I was not strong in math, but I got an A in math one year because that teacher did two things, taught in bite-sized chunks mm-hmm. and monitored, walked around the room to see if we were getting each chunk. If we didn't, she would, and my audiences always respond with the R word, we have to reteach. Now, take my word for it, that doesn't happen in many places. And I'm, I'm, this all has to do with the answer to your question. If a, if a single building leader or a superintendent wants achievement to take off like a rocket, they need to do those things. Get a curriculum in place, and I can talk about that for half a moment. Make sure it's full of opportunities to read, talk, and write about the documents that are in the curriculum and make sure the teacher fully understands that check for understanding and reteaching cycle and they employ it. If they focus on even one or two of those at a time, uh, they're they're going to see gains. You know, Mike, you just, when you just described curriculum, um, the, 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 one of the challenges is, is that Many describe curriculum as content, you know. So mm-hmm. there are um, there is the the misunderstanding that curriculum is sometimes just a series of things to teach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I th- what you're describing in in curriculum is is more and deeper than just what we want students to know. It's how. We expect mm-hmm. and want mm-hmm. them to learn it, right? It aligns to the instructional practices. Am I right? It, it does. It does. And I would, I would want to. There's, there's a tension there, and I would want to say, I, I wouldn't get too deep or too shallow with regard to the how. But for instance, I mean, you, you, you had, you, you interviewed Linda Darling Hammond, did you not? I did. Yes. Okay. Now, now, I love her little expression. She says, it's what to teach and when. Every teacher deserves and will be vastly better if they just have a schedule. This is a quote from her work, a schedule of what to teach and when. Now, my work with curriculum, you, you know, if you read my books like Focus, for instance, yes. um, I basically say, okay, once you know what those topics are, PLC teams get together and say, all right, here's the topic. What are the texts we're going to use in order to teach either individual topics or families of topics? And let's always come up with higher order questions, and this gets you into the how. Not too much detail, but at least here's a higher order question, uh, like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna study Western, uh, Western expansion. The question is, what is your opinion of American US behavior, you know, politically and culturally, as 
as our nation moved and developed west? That's the question. Always higher order questions. If you're reading, if, if you're reading literature, is Jack a good kid, or is he an eth or is he an ethically challenged little rascal? That's your higher <laughs> order question. That's the per and I and I've probably conduct. I do demonstration <laughs> lessons all the time, and that's that used to be one of my favorites to do. And the kids would just love this. I would teach them how to underline, how to annotate a little bit down the line, and they would have they would every kid in there, including the so called quietest ones who never contribute. I'd be calling on them randomly. I couldn't tell which kids were LD, which kids were the brightest ones in the class half the time. They were full of opinions on what kind of guy Jack is. If they're, if we're reading Great Gatsby, was he, uh, was he, a, you know, a victim of the decadent twenties, or, or is he, uh, you know, just a lovesick, a lovesick victim, or is he just a lout, you know, who deserved, who, who wrought havoc and deserved everything bad that happened to him? These are the kinds of questions that ought to inform every part of the curriculum. And I think they provide plenty of how, uh, both with regard to what is taught, and they also animate literacy, what we, what we look for when we read, what we discuss, and then what we write about. You know, one thing and, um, that I appreciated about our, our conversation prior to this as well was our discussion on higher ed and colleges. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe we can unpack that a little bit. I certain, think that I, I sometimes in the in the past have described colleges as sometimes the tail that wags the dog. And, yeah. you know, here we are preparing students um, for sometimes the, 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 the worst instruction uh, they may experience. And, um, you know, colleges obviously have their, their, their challenges as well. In the meantime, and of course, I'm a supporter of higher ed. I... Uh, I'm a product, and my my daughter's in college right now. I, they play an incredible, important role. However, um, colleges also uh, assume the responsibility of helping train and prepare our yeah. teachers and leaders to um, you know to do the right work in schools and districts on behalf of communities. Mm -hmm. So maybe. Can we just chat about this a little bit? What What are some of your thoughts right now on higher ed's role in being part of the solution? Right, right. You know, again, a lot of what I have to say might sound kind of simple, but we we do need to just pause sometimes and ask ourselves what's the what's the qual what's the what's the state of the system, and it starts in a way at the top with the uh, with with higher ed or college preparation for teachers as well as administrators. And I just finished this second edition of uh, Results Now, Results Now 2.0, which will come out in the spring. And one of the things I, I, that it confirmed for me as I did this research was the fact that the most eminent education professors, the ones who do, uh, people like Richard Elmore, who's regarded as an icon, he was at yes. Harvard, for many years. Um, Robert Pianta, many of these people say shockingly damning things about their own programs. Um, I, I have pages <laughs> and pages in that book describing how, you know, Arthur Levine studies that were done 20 years ago that basically said there might be two decent ed schools in the country. I cite uh, a, a couple of people in, now, there's a positive here. I'm getting to that. Um, <laughs> 
you, you've got this, uh, the, the superintendent and assistant superintendent who could see none of their teachers were coming out of college prepared to teach, just basic things. And they found, they did a little, did a little spade work and found out there was about 17 different ed colleges they came from. Not one of those ed colleges, from what they could see, was was preparing these people the basics of how to teach. I got to where I was so frustrated uh, with this, I would go in and sit down with, frankly, the the deans and the assistant deans in the school in the in the in the universities that surround me here in the state of Arizona and in a couple of other places, and I would say to them, you, it, I would gingerly and kind of, you know, always awkward you know, to come in and sit down with the deans and thank God they'd make a few minutes for me. And I'd say, I'm telling you, don't you agree that these things ought to be done and ought to be known by every teacher and implemented? And they would sort of reluctantly agree. And then Hmm. I'd say, well, I'm I'm being, I'm not, I'm not here to, to be unpleasant, but virtually none of these teachers have any grasp of these basic elements of good teaching that we both agree are so important. And they complain to me that they never learned this stuff in your programs. And frankly, all I would ever get is lip service and, oh, gee, I guess we need to work on that until the whole system, including higher ed, is just shocked the way medical practice was shocked in the early 1900s when a guy named Abraham Flexner, interestingly, he was an an education professor at, at the turn of the last century, he went into all these medical schools and all these hospitals and he wrote a report and he dropped this bomb on, on the medical community and said, there's not 5% of our doctors and medical staff are well-prepared. Therefore, they're not, they're not uh, implementing the most basic medical procedures and practices. And that's why so many people die overnight, sort of like the Fosbury flop. They started washing you know, their hands. Medical practice just like like we've never seen before the guy probably saved more lives than anyone in history period because it affected not just america but the whole world we need that kind of shock to occur elmore clamored for it many others that i write about in my book but professors we all know are saying good heavens it is time to can i add one more thing here please please the aera the, the 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 eminent american educational research association recently came out and this is the problem no one knows this this is what hides behind elmore's buffer no one knows this or would even suspect it they recently came out to say we should stop teaching methods teaching methods in methods courses we should instead teach students and this is a this is from uh seidenberg i can't remember his first name but he's a big phonics scholar, maybe the most influential phonics scholar, and an ed professor himself who has the same views of all this as I do. And he points out that the ARA is standing athwart anyone trying to teach a teacher how to teach. Instead, they want to be, and this is a quote, socialized into an identity or philosophy of education. That's precisely what we do not need. We need to go back to, or if, if it was ever the case, teaching teachers how to teach basic, basic moves, the kind which I write about people like Doug Lamov write about. Uh, It's, it's time for us to do what the research tells us. It's time for us to wash our hands. Yeah. Long answer to a short question, Jeff, but hard to stop me on that one. Do you think um, based upon what we've gone through 
in, in this country, in this world, um, over the last few years. Um, because, you know, the, the, the paradigm of now uh, is a bit different than it was just a few years ago. I mean, I actually think there's more distractions, but I also think that it's an opportunity. It's, it's a ripe opportunity for, mm. um, for, for some change. If, if we can't make changes now, Mike, based upon what we've learned, what we've gone through, how will we ever make changes is my curiosity. What, right. what, what do you think is the right strategy for us to shock the system, to rattle leaders, communities, teachers, without, of course, picking on or offending, but rattle them to relate to what can happen if we do it right. Mm -hmm. What is the strategy mm -hmm. to actually see a change to fruition as opposed to just talk about it? Well, and, and, and this, this a, a, a couple of things. Number one, I just want to add to my previous remarks. Very briefly, if higher ed, if administrative and instructional preparation programs began to teach administrators and teachers how to teach, how to build curriculum, how to supervise curriculum and instruction, that by itself would would have a, an immense immediate impact. Okay. Okay. So what can we do right now? And, you know, I wish I could say there's some one thing that would work and work fast. The only thing I can think of is as many of us as possible need to be willing to be honest about what's really happening in schools, to acquaint ourselves with what matters most, to point to the gap between the most effective stuff and what we actually commonly do. If enough of us went to, went to our uh, administrative and teacher preparation programs, if enough administrators went and said, can you please just teach two or three basic courses that allow our teachers to arrive at our schools with just a basic kit. How to, how to teach literacy, and I talk about how, how much simpler this is than it looks in many of my writings, and how to teach effectively in any subject. If they just went to, the, to their universities and said, can you please just provide that kind of coursework? If enough people in a region or a state or a, or a metropolitan area did that, I think it could, could, could be transformational. The other kind of bigger thing, I guess, is, and then I want to get to an end with a smaller thing, is I, I wish more writers wrote more boldly and prominently. Mm. And I wish our publications, and you know the major ones that are out there. Sure. I wish they were more willing. I wish they, they would seek writers who would say, good heavens, we have got a long way to go. We are not washing our hands. We need to make this known. And two things that Michael Petrelli and people at the Fordham Institute have been telling us for a while, and that is, I don't know where it might begin, Jeff, but, but we, we need to let parents know that 90% of parents think their children are on grade level. About 35% of them are actually on grade level. We need boldness and honesty and candor throughout the system. We need clarity about what works. And... I'll, I'll just end since we're talking about solutions in a way. As I, you know, I love uh, good to great. I love Jeff Collins. Not yes. Jeff, not um, I, Jeff. 
not Jeff, Jim Collins. I went to high school with Jeff Collins. He was our highest scorer <laughs> on our, our state championship basketball team. So I'm conflating your name. I, 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 and, and I'm not that Jeff. So I want to be clear. Uh, no, no, you're not. <laughs> but hi out there, Jeff. Maybe he'll get this. But the, the other thing is, you know, he talks about, look, big change begins with very small things. There's one thing I think could be a, a, a real catalyst. And that is whatever we do, start as the unit of measurement to, to move that needle. Start with teaching teachers how to teach good curriculum-based topics and skills and gather data on individual lessons. In other words, I just taught this math problem on this math topic. I used checks for understanding. I taught, I taught in small manageable bites. And I got, of my 32 students, I got 28 of them to learn that. I've been working with my PLC team. We've helped each other to, to really get command of these simple, basic uh, instructional moves. And whereas in the past, maybe 15 of the students would have done well on that math, um, that math problems um, assessment. Now we've got 28 out of 32. I'm teaching my students simple things like how to integrate quotes uh, naturally, uh, into and effectively into their paragraphs, their argumentative paragraphs. I taught them how to do that using the, the most basic elements of instruction and got you know, 85, 90% of the students to learn that and report those back at, on, by email at every single faculty meeting, have teachers stand up and do a quick segment of a successful lesson that they did. I think that small unit of measurement could uh, could light a fire and as Collins likes to say start to turn that flywheel because once enough people start to say oh my gosh we've got a curriculum in place which only took us two or three hours to rough out by the way this business of years of processing my wife who went to a school that that, that won awards for the gains they made they banged out their rough curriculum in two hours you get that curriculum in place you teach teachers the basic moves of good teaching. You report out every small win that they that they achieve, and pretty soon everybody starts to to get with the program. The success breeds success, and away we go. Who knows? That might that might invade the system all the way up to the to to, to higher ed with some luck. Well, the the one thing that's important that I I, I hope people are taking away from this. I know I am. Is um, our our ability to be very honest about what is and what's not occurring. I think uh, the reason sometimes um, educational entities are not is because educators sometimes feel picked on, right? I think that at times they think that the, yeah. the narrative is wrong around educators, and then therefore what we have to do is we have to be better communicators relative to all the great things that we're doing. And so you see communication departments of educational institutions pouring out all of the wonderful work, innovative, exciting work they're doing, almost in a defense mode. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think unintentionally, they're creating a narrative that they're pushing that may not be accurate relative to what's impacting students or, you know, not impacting students. And so mm -hmm. I think it's, I, I really appreciate you saying well, number one, we can still communicate the, the great work we're doing, 
But in the meantime, let's also be honest about what's not occurring to try to make the shift to helping us wash our hands and do what we and know I is basic. Been, yes, Jeff, and I think we've been kind of seduced into the kind of showcasing that you just described, which isn't necessarily, it appears to be, but it isn't necessarily the, 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 uh, the substance of real improvements in education. Um, graduation rates, for instance, became, it became very popular to publish graduation rates. Yes. I don't know how much of that literature you've come across. It's one of the biggest scams of the last 10 years. I, I devote, again, a, a couple, three pages to this. You've got people like uh, President Obama speaking at a school in Chicago because their graduation rate soared. And then they took a look at the data and found out that the test scores were going down during the same years that the graduation rate was soaring. We have we have uh, alternative programs for uh, there's a name for them and I'm sorry it escapes me that that uh, artificially pump up graduation rates. These are these are things that we showcase which can be misleading to ourselves as well as to our our public. And I don't mean to be insensitive to the very important question you ask, and that is, or, or, or the, the issue of, do, do schools feel picked on? Of course they do. Um, and and it's, it's unfortunate that the system itself puts them in a situation where they, I, I'm not sure the system as a whole knows enough and gets the right signals about what really makes a difference for a kid in school is regarding their achievement, the reduction of the achievement gap. Um, I, I don't think we know enough or emphasize enough those basic things. And I always say, what's what's wrong with basic stuff? People think it's boring. They think it's already been tried and failed. And, and the whole system will be skewed, kind of warped. We're going to have teachers who feel picked on without knowing quite why. We're going to have the whole ed system saying, why are you always picking on us? Because nobody yet sees that. And this isn't anybody's particular fault. It's an entire whole system problem with the fact that we don't identify what works best and then make damn sure it gets implemented. That's really all we need to go to do. When, when does 2.0 come out? Well, it doesn't come out until May. Okay. Okay. In May. Might be April, but probably May. All right. So um, once that hits, um, uh, if it's, I'm going to call you again, just so you know. I can't, I, I mean, I knew we talked about that coming out, but I mean, I haven't read it. And as soon as it comes out, I'm going to read it and I want to talk. So I'm wow. very curious. So, you know, uh, Mike, this Thank is a question you. I ask of all, of all people I, I interview in this show. Um, most of our work is actually um, gathering people so leaders can help each other, right? We have mm -hmm. a strategy and a, and a protocols on members helping members um, with sometimes some very practical and you know pragmatic strategies on dealing with some educational challenges. Mm -hmm. So um, let's pretend around this circular table, I have a few superintendents, a couple of deputy superintendents, um, and a few principals, and very quickly I call you over. I say, Mike, come sit around this table real quick. 
And you say, well, Jeff, I only got a minute. And I say, that's okay, just, just please. Mm-hmm. We have some people and they want to hear what you have to say. What, mm-hmm. what words of wisdom do you want to leave, leave them with? What would you right. say? Well, if I may take your question and, and, and just fashion it a little bit. Sure, feel free. It would, in that minute, I would have to say, uh, folks, t- tell me if I'm wrong. George Orwell likes to say, now this is just you and I talking. This is what, not what I'd say to them necessarily. George Orwell likes to say, the first duty of intelligent men and women is to constantly restate the obvious. And I always tell audiences right at the start, I say, what I'm about to tell you, don't be shocked if you think, I've known that, I know it already, I've known it for decades. I would say to that group, I'd say, folks, how many of you, raise your hand if you believe that curriculum is quite probably, according to the research, perhaps the largest, most significant element in educational improvement. Raise your hand if you think that's probably the case. And I'll bet the hands would go up. And I'd say, how many of you think that the amount of reading, writing, and discussion around the curriculum is probably almost in a dead heat with curriculum? A bunch of hands would go up. And then I'd say, and if I had, I might need a moment to, to elaborate, but I'd say, how many of you believe that that these two or three elements, like checks for understanding, like having a clear lesson objective and an assessment that tells you how many students succeeded on that day's lesson. How many of you would agree with me that most of the time, not every lesson, but most, that that's the stuff that counts, that that has an enormous impact and a bunch of hands would go up and I'd say, don't do anything but but learn about those focus on them, make sure everyone in your school district understands them and can implement them before you do anything else. Ignore all else, just like Colin says, ignore the rest. Focus on those things because if you if you don't, all your efforts will get watered down, your effort will dissipate, not much will come of it. Something like that. I yes, well, well said. Mike, I... um. Like I said when I opened the show, um, this is this is an honor for me uh, to be able to talk with you like this. It really it makes um, you've impacted me for for years, and to be able to bring this perspective, especially uh, as you know, 2.0 is about to be launched, is great timing. And uh, I I look forward to the next time we chat again. And this is like I said, this has been. Um, uh, it's been very special, uh, not just for me, but for our listeners and our members. And so just know that you are appreciated. Well, you're very kind, Jeff. And this was truly an honor and a great pleasure to to get to know you and to do this. Okay. Well, our, our paths will cross again, Mike. Thank you so much. They will. I look forward to it. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, that was hard for me because um, I'm jotting down notes as he's talking. I, I could have gone another hour another two. Um, so I just, uh, I, I know you appreciate the, the frank and the, the, the frankness that Mike brings to us, the ability to describe this is the problem. And if only we would wash our hands, if only we would focus on some of the basics relative to what we know works specific to curriculum and instruction, um, kids would benefit. And so it's our job as leaders now. It is. It's our job as leaders to do everything we can to move sometimes away from the things that distract us and lean into the things that have impact. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed this leader chat, and I assume that you have. Be well.